Welcome to the Calvary St. George's Sermon Podcast, proclaiming the historic faith of Christ and Him crucified. These podcasts are recorded and produced by the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. For more information about our ministries, head to calvarystgeorges.org. Our gospel reading uh, is the calling of Matthew, uh, the tax collector, and this is actually a profoundly, profoundly offensive scene. And it gets, though, right at the very heart of what Christianity is actually all about. Now, tax collectors in the first century Palestine, they had uh, totally betrayed their people. They betrayed their own people for their own private interest, and hence they were considered traitors by, the, by Israel. Uh, the Roman system of taxation was in, uh, ingenious on a number of levels. So what you would do is Rome would come in and take over a place, and then you would, so they took over Palestine, Israel, and uh, you have Moisha the Israelite. And what would happen is, is that Moisha the Israelite would owe Rome 500 denarii a month in taxes. Now, as a Roman, an occupying force in this land, I have no idea where Moisha hides his money or how to get it from him. And here's where the tax collector, like Matthew, comes into play. Matthew's local, he knows the area. And he knows where Moisha hides his money. And if he doesn't know where Moisha hides his money, he definitely knows where Moisha's sister lives. And he knows where Moisha's kids go to school. And so I, being the Roman occupier, would send Matthew to Moisha's house as nemonously as possible to get that 500 denarii. However, Matthew also needs to get paid, right? And so Matthew is going to shake Moisha down for an initial, an additional 250 denarii in order to cover his own cost until Moisha will finally show up to that tax booth and pay his 500 denarii, and then Matthew can only shake him down for another 150. There actually was a Roman law about that. But I mean, this is a terrible, terrible situation. So when you think tax collector, don't think like uptight IRS agent. Go darker. (laughs) Think Jewish capo in Nazi Germany with a big giant yellow star on their jacket. These men would have been complete outsiders to polite society and just regular society for that matter. This job was so blasphemous that they were debarred from attending synagogues. They were considered ceremonially unclean. They could not provide witness in a court of law. And some rabbis began to question even their Jewishness. The moment you put on that role of tax collector, were you still a son of Abraham? They were outsiders. So what on earth I mean, this is a capo. What on earth is Jesus doing calling this capo to be one of his closest disciples? And why is this plopped down in a series of miracles? If you notice the structure of Matthew's gospel, uh, the Sermon on the Mount ends in chapter 7, where they are all astonished by Jesus' teaching, and they say, my gosh, this guy teaches as one with his own authority, meaning he's not quoting any other rabbis. He's just telling you like it is. 
And then in chapter 8, he heals like some paralytics and a few lepers, demonstrating that he has authority over sickness. And then he calms a terrible storm and then exercises two demoniacs which means that he's got authority over the natural and the supernatural. And then you come to our chapter today, chapter 9, and he heals a woman who's hemorrhaging. And then he raises someone from the dead, demonstrating he has authority over death itself. And then in chapter 10, he calls his disciples and he empowers them to go out, demonstrating that they even have authority in his name. So why is this miracle, or this... I gave away my point. Why is this, uh, this, this teaching plopped down in the middle of this? Well, the earliest church, the earliest church, and it's easy for us to miss this, considered Matthew's sudden conversion to Jesus' call to also be a miracle. Jesus speaks the words to Matthew. The same words he spoke to Peter, James, and John, the nice little fishermen. He says, follow me. Now what's being demonstrated? What's being demonstrated in Jesus strolling into this tax booth and delivering this imperious command to Matthew is the power of God unto salvation. The power of the word. What's being demonstrated in this miracle is what is needed What is needed in order to deliver disciples then and deliver disciples today from everything that defines us? We love to be defined by something. And it can all be put under the heading of morality. So this is demonstrating that Jesus even has authority over our definitions of morality. Whether it's in the case of Peter, James, and John, precious and upstanding familial ties, And an honest living, I mean, how many of us are defined by our jobs or our family history? Or, in the case of Matthew, things that are debased, like betrayal and extortion. Maybe for you, it's a lie you told that's defined you and carried with you ever since. Maybe for you, it's something you've done. But what is needed and what is being taught here is the authority of Jesus over those things. What is needed to deliver us from this notion of who are insiders and who are outsiders. This is my first point. There is power. There is power in Jesus' words to deliver you from both piety and vice. There is power in Jesus' words to deliver you from being an insider or an outsider by the world's definition. The surest way to break the grip of whatever defines your life other than Christ is not a list of do's and don'ts. Rather, it is to allow this discipling word, follow me, to penetrate your ears and move down and reside deeply into your hearts. That's the only power, actually. Not a list of do's and don'ts, not a bunch of laws and regulations, but the power of the word, follow Jesus, 
That's the only power that the church has to change people's lives. And look how it's changed yours. Now, to really grind, to really grind against our pietism, to make the situation even more outrageous. And uh, believe me, I mean, I'm here in investments. I'm, I'm totally, for the longest time, I was defined by pietism and what I was doing until I went to seminary and found out actually the gospel was for me too. You see, my problem was is that I thought Jesus got me into the dance, but I'd better learn and do a bunch of things uh, to stay in the dance. And so I was doing all of these things, you know what I mean? And in seminary, gosh, I was just an insufferable person. And I remember I was talking to my mentor who taught me the gospel in seminary, and uh, uh, his name was Paul. And I was, like, I was like, Paul, if what you are saying is right, then everything I've been doing is totally wrong. And he goes, that may be the case, Jacob. And so, but I say this because I put myself in the place of the Pharisees. And to see Jesus hanging out with all of these people, this just is more outrageous because what happens is, is that Matthew... He hears Jesus' call, and then he throws his, like, tax-collecting retirement party. And several other tax collectors show up, and, you know, all sorts of fringy types, you know, people with, like, you know, interesting piercings, I don't know. But anyway, uh, they're all there hanging out, you know, and they're, they're thanking Matthew for a, uh, a well-done, dishonest job, you know, and they may have got, chipped in and got him a watch or stole a watch and gave it to him. But uh, this, is, this is terrible. And then Jesus and his disciples show up. And you want to know what the disciples are thinking? Just read about what happened to Peter in Galatians, what Paul says happens to Peter in Galatians. I mean, this is awkward because then the Pharisees show up and they begin to look into the room. And isn't this interesting what Matthew does? The outsiders are now on the inside, and the people who thought they were on the inside are looking inside because they're outsiders. And I wouldn't go into that party. I mean, I'm an Episcopal priest. I got a reputation to maintain, you know what I mean? I'm a member of the OSJ, so I'm not going in there. You know, I mean, because what's going on in this, it's like Oingo Boingo saying in 1985, this is a dead man's party. Leave your reputation, your body, and your soul right at the door. However, Jesus, and so they ask, the Pharisees ask, Jesus' disciples, they ask him this question, why does your master, why does your teacher eat with such people? Because in those days, eating dinner was like a sign of we're all in this together. This was a sign of solidarity. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Don't you know we're having a discussion whether these people are actually Jewish? And Jesus hears it, and he responds to them with the very essence of what Jesus is all about, he responds to them with the very essence of what Christianity is all about. Unfortunately, so much of the church has forgot it, and I'll tell you about it in just a sec. But he responds to them with what his mission is all about. He says, those who are well have no need for a physician. But those who are sick, oh, you want to know why Jesus got crucified? Those who are sick need me. You see, this is the problem with the Pharisees. Nowhere in the New Testament does Jesus ever say the Pharisees are possessed by demons. 
they accuse him of being demonically possessed. As a matter of fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, the problem with the Pharisees is that they're too healthy. We all know those people, you know, they're all drinking instead of whiskey kombucha and having a kale wrap when you really want a hamburger. You know, it's like, am I the only one with those people in my life? But that is, I mean, the problem is, is that they are too healthy. They've become too self-sufficient. And they have been blinded by their own morality, which has led them to a place of self-reliance before God, which is the worst place to be. They actually believe what they do defines them. How many of us in that room, this room believe that before God? What you do defines you. What they do defines them as insiders. But let me tell you what Christianity is actually all about. Christianity, according to Jesus, is not about good people getting it together. It's not about good people getting better. It is ultimately about sick people coming to grips with their failure to be well. Sick people coming to grips with their need for a savior. I mean, if you think about it, think about it. If you're well, you have no need or interest in a doctor. But if you're like me, you know, and you have a kink in your neck, and then you go to WebMD and it diagnoses you as either having like emphysema or scoliosis or something like that, you immediately call your doctor because you want to get this checked out. And the same thing goes with Jesus. I'm not following Jesus because I need some life tips to be better. I'm following Jesus because I need a total and complete life support system. I follow that, Lord, because he's the only one who can save me from myself. And just for a second, imagine a doctor. Imagine a doctor not interested in treating sick people. Not much of a doctor at all. And the same thing goes with Jesus. He wouldn't be much of a savior if he wasn't interested in sinners if he didn't come and join the company of sinners in the midst of their sin and their darkness, shedding his gracious light on the situation. This is my second point. And this is what Christianity is actually all about. Christianity is not about outsiders becoming insiders on their own terms. It's not about good people getting better. It's not about moral people becoming more moral. Jesus' mission... His purpose for coming to the world is to seek and save the lost. To become lost in our death so that he, we might be found in him. He came in solidarity, actually, with sinners. This is why he's baptized in the River Jordan with John. This is why he's crucified with sinners. This is why he bears the guilt of the entire world on his shoulders. The good news of the gospel is Jesus doesn't avoid sin, but he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Baptized into his death and life to live lives totally dependent upon his grace and forgiveness. 
Do we have that painting? Is it able to pull it up? We're good? All right. Can we pull that painting up, the Caravaggio painting? There it is. This painting is one of my favorite paintings, and it's by Michelangelo Caravaggio, and uh, it was painted in the 1600s. Many of you know maybe the Caravaggio painting of Doubting Thomas with his hand literally in Jesus' side. This is another one, and this is entitled The Calling of St. Matthew the Apostle. And there they are in that tax booth, and the scene is dark, and Jesus is actually in the darkness. But notice the light moving from the right to the left, and it literally shines upon these men. It's almost though with his hand pointing an extension of Jesus himself. And it's shining there on Matthew, the man on the middle. He's pointing to himself like he's just been called to come up as a contestant on The Price is Right. And, uh, you know, he's like, me? Of all people? Me? And you see the light shining on all of these guys, their quills and their, their puffy hats looking like Flemish 16th century thugs. And, uh, you know, and uh, there they are. But I wish there would have been a second painting with Jesus and that same light radiating out on the Pharisees. Because if you're religious like me, there's mercy and grace for you too. If Jesus would have just stopped with, do not think that I've come to call the righteous, but the unrighteous. Do not think it's the physician that doesn't need, but the sick. They would have blown him off. Jesus delivers to them graciously the scriptures, the scriptures of the Old Testament. He says, go and learn what this means. And then quoting the prophet Hosea, who's our first reading today, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He quotes the same prophet who marries a prostitute to demonstrate the grace and love of God. He, de- he, 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 he quotes a prostitute to demonstrate that God always operates by grace through faith, that those who are not God's people would be called God's people. And the way to God's heart, and this is what religious people like myself need to learn all the time, the way to God's heart is through faith, that God's declared you righteous not because of what you do, but because of what Christ has done for you. That's the whole point of Romans 4. And produced by God's grace alone, what happens is is that we're given eyes for the first time to see our neighbor. You know, when you realize that you're more of a tax collector than a Pharisee, and yet deeply forgiven by God's grace, that God has forgiven even that in Jesus, then genuine mercy flows from your life by grace towards the neighbor, and then the circle of insiders by the power of the gospel and God's Holy Spirit expands to include everyone from every tribe, nation, and tongue on earth, and never on our terms but on his terms alone, which are the blood of Jesus. It's free. And this is what I think the big problem of the church is, and I'm almost done. The church today, especially in America, and at Calvary St. George's, may we be different The problem with the church in America today is that we're always, this is why we're pawns and tools in the midst of culture wars, and it's coming back up again as we go into another political year, so I'm just telling you, brace yourself. But the church in America is obsessed with being righteous. 
It's obsessed with finding its righteousness in the law as opposed to what St. Paul says, a righteousness apart from the law. And we want to be either righteous conservatively or now we want to be righteous progressively. And we're not obsessed enough with sharing the grace of God with sinners. We're not obsessed enough with giving those two words to people. Follow Jesus. And this is my third point. The message of the gospel only makes sense when you realize that none of us really deserve to be here at all. We don't deserve the gifts of grace given to us in baptism. We don't deserve absolution or to receive the body and blood. No one here has earned our way here based on our right decisions or right choice. We're here today because of God's undeserved kindness in Jesus that has wooed us here by the Holy Spirit. The same grace that calls kapos to be disciples. The same grace that breaks bread with sinners. The same grace that's poured out on a pious man in robes in this pulpit. The same grace that declares outsiders insiders. It declares you today, wherever you are at, once you were not my people. But now you are my people because of my son Jesus. And once you had not received mercy, but now I have lavished it upon you. And you've received mercy in the bread that is his body and the wine that is his blood. So wherever you are, insider or outsider, come to the table. You're welcome. Baptized in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast, produced and recorded at the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. If you feel led to support the continuing ministry of our parish, we would really appreciate it. You can make a one-time or recurring gift by going to calvarystgeorges.org slash give. Thank you for your support.